0: helping next generations helping next generations helping next generations encounter and follow Jesus encounter and follow Jesus encounter and follow Jesus to bless a broken world to bless a broken world to bless a broken world helping next generations encounter and follow Jesus to bless a broken world this is who we are this is who we, this are. Is who we are this is who we are this is who we are Good morning, I'm Jeff Mickey, and uh, this is who we are. This is the series we are in uh, the f- fourth week of four weeks on this series, and my guess is uh, that a number of us walk in with expectations of who Orchard Hill Church is or what a church is going to be. We have expectations of, of what we expect to be taught from the front, of what kind of music we expect to hear, uh, what kind of singing, um, and how we're gonna engage with our community how we're gonna serve, how we're gonna navigate difficult times. And when the church doesn't meet those expectations, I think it can create some tension for us when there's some disagreement and some conflict. And I think over the last couple years, for some people there's the sense that maybe there's been more tension in church or in churches uh, than maybe at any other time in our history. But I wanna say this morning that I think the truth is Tension has been a part of the church since its very foundation. It's always been a part of who we are. I taught last fall about Jesus' 12 disciples, his closest friends, and, you know, we want to think that they all got along, and they probably had uh, secret handshakes, and they did some really cool stuff together, but the truth of the matter is they probably fought like brothers because many of them were brothers, and we read about their arguments and their disagreements in the Gospels. Uh, We know that they had different political views from one another. Simon was a zealot who was a revolutionary, wanted to do violence to anybody associated with the Roman government. And Matthew was collecting taxes for the Roman government. There were plenty of enemies within this group of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, as churches start to be planted, and Paul's planting all these churches, he actually writes to one of the churches that he got started in, uh, in the Sea of Corinth, and he says this to them. This isn't very long after they first started. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? You can hear this frustration in Paul, this grief in Paul over this division that's happening in this church after it's just getting started. The church was divided because many people thought one leader was better than other leaders. Maybe they were a better teacher or speaker. Maybe what they were teaching or how they were interpreting the scriptures aligned more with their own personal views. Either way, they would go and they'd tell other people, listen, follow Apollos, follow Cephas, don't follow those other guys. They're leading you astray. And it was dividing the church. And Paul says to them, please, in the name of Jesus, stop, knock it off. You're being divisive. And Jesus cannot be divided. Find your unity, find your purpose in Jesus. At one point we know that Jesus even rebuked Peter because Peter was hanging out with some uh, influential Jewish leaders who were emphasizing Jewish tradition and the law and it was becoming a burden especially on new believers and people who were coming into the church from outside the Jewish tradition. Paul had to go to him and say, listen, you're dividing the church, stop. And then much later, centuries later, as the churches start to flourish and start to grow, we know that there continued to be tension and the leaders had to address this tension. People would come into the church with their own spiritual practices from worshiping other gods. They'd come in with their own philosophical ideas, their own ideologies and political views and agendas Tension and debate have always been a part of who we are, of who the church is. It's not new, it's normal. One of the things that the early church leaders did to address these tensions and to keep the church together was they formed creeds, these simple statements of their core beliefs. This kept the church united as they agreed on what was most important. And it also helped new members coming into the church understand who the church was, what the church was about. And in this same letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we see the roots of these creeds starting to form. He actually says, you know, we're going to be united on Jesus. And he says this, here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Here's what really matters. That Christ died for our sins. That he was buried, in other words, he was really dead, and he was raised on the thor- third day according to scriptures, and then he appeared to several people. Does anything matter more to us today than this truth that Jesus died, was buried, was raised to new life? That we too are raised to new life after death. Nothing more central to our belief as followers of Jesus. Years later, most of what Paul says right here is lifted almost word for word along with several other uh, pieces of his teachings and other disciples teachings and what Jesus taught as well and they form the basis of the Apostles Creed and others creed, other creeds. The Apostles didn't write the Apostles Creed but they're based on the Apostles teaching and they developed independently, organically, and churches that were separated by miles and by languages and by cultural uh, ideologies and all kinds of stuff. But they held the church together through tension and conflict so that the mission and the movement of Jesus could continue moving forward and blessing a dark and broken world. These same beliefs that are found in the Apostles' Creed form the core of what we believe here at Orchard Hill Church together with our mission, they are the foundation of who we are. We've been saying that now for four weeks. It's so important that we're taking four weeks. We took four weeks to talk about these, to teach about the creed. Each teacher's taken a, a different phrase from the creed and taught about it. And my phrase comes near the end of the creed where it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy Catholic church in the communion of saints. And before I dive into that, I want to share a couple reasons why I think this is important. I already shared one. I think in moments like this, it's never more important than to be reminded of what our core beliefs are. A couple other reasons, though, as I was preparing for this series, why are we talking about this right now? One reason is I think it's absolutely core to our mission. The first half of our mission statement says that we are helping next generations encounter and follow Jesus and as someone who has kids who are part of that next generation, and who has a lot of friends who have kids who are part of the generation after that, one thing that's clear to me about next generations is there's a lot of deconstruction going on. And basically, what that means is that there are a lot of young people who are reexamining their faith, who are asking questions and thinking about what is the Bible? What does a life of faith actually look like? Who is God? How do I live this out? And a lot of this is happening because what they've been taught isn't jiving with their experiences or maybe it hasn't been modeled for them. There's also a whole bunch of social, cultural, political, theological issues that are being debated and a lot of these are being debated like with intense emotion and people get triggered and important relationships get disrupted and convictions get challenged. And I believe that deconstruction can actually be a good thing. It can actually be helpful for our young people. As long as we have a safe place in the church for people to ask their questions, to share their perspectives and experiences, to try out their beliefs. This is happening in some of your families. I know it's happening in my family. And again, it can be good when there are safe places for our young people to do this. The problem is when young people can't find a safe place in the church to have these conversations. Because when they don't, they tend to walk away, if not from their faith, at least from their faith community. For example, unless you've been living on another planet somewhere the last 10, 20, 50 years, you know that issues of sexuality, gender, and marriage have been hotly debated and discussed inside and outside of the church. Last year, our board organized a task force and they brought together leaders of several different generations, from Millennials and whoever's after the Millennials, I can't keep them all straight anymore, and the Boomers and beyond. One of the main takeaways that this group had is that as a church, we need to get better at creating safe spaces where we're able to talk about hard things, hot button issues that we disagree about. This is especially essential if we're going to help next generations encounter and follow Jesus. And that leads me to the second reason why this series is important is because we have to get better at handling disagreement and conflict it's here, it's always been here. It's the norm, more is on the way. And here's what I see happen sometimes in myself, maybe some of you will relate to this. I can spend a week outside a church and I'm immersed in or bombarded by different ideas and ideals from either political leaders or the media or maybe things I'm listening to on the you know music or, or, or popular culture from family and friends, social media. And and this stuff sticks to me when I walk in here on a Sunday morning. And then a teacher is teaching, and they're trying to help me understand something that was written 2,000 years ago. And in order to help me bridge that, they might use an illustration or a story of something that's happening in our world today. And sometimes that's something that's social or cultural or political. And they choose a word that triggers me. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm lost, and I'm not able to listen anymore. And I think sometimes it's because I allow ideology to shape my theology. In other words, rather than allowing God and his word to shape my ideas and ideals about how we should live and what faith looks like, sometimes I allow other influences to shape my ideas and ideals about God and faith. It happens it's normal and I know that it happens to some other people because occasionally I'll get a call after one of these teachings and somebody will say hey Jeff can I come in and talk to you because I heard the teaching yesterday I'm concerned that Orchard's becoming a little too liberal for me and then an hour or two later I'll get a call from somebody else says hey Jeff can I come in and talk to you today because I'm concerned that Orchard's become a little too conservative for me same teaching same (laughs) illustration And the only thing I can think of is that our ideology is shaping our theology, impacting how we're hearing God's word. And first, I want to say, I don't know that we can avoid this, right? And I also don't think there's anything wrong with having these conversations. It's perfectly normal, and it's healthy to have them. It's perfectly normal. It's healthy to acknowledge and to address concerns that we have. And I know that the leaders here at Orchard Church and all the teachers really work hard to listen very hard. And I know for me, I'll speak for myself, that when I have these conversations, I almost always learn something and my perspective grows. And I almost always deepen a relationship with somebody as a result of the conversations. Now, there are times when we just disagree and that's okay. There have been a couple times where somebody has decided, you know, I don't think Orchard's the fit for me anymore. And you know what? That's okay, too. That's okay. I just believe that to follow Jesus' third way, we have to be willing to consider how influences from the rest of our week may be sticking to us and impacting the way we hear and receive God's word, both during the week and here on a Sunday morning. And we have to be willing to set aside our ideology in order to engage the Bible and to listen and learn from other people, even those we disagree with. See, what's unhealthy is when we allow ideological differences to divide the church. This is what Paul was addressing in the church in Corinth, and he says it does tremendous damage to divide the church, to force people to choose a side based on a personal preference or a personal experience or a social or political conviction. It almost always ends up with one side saying, you know what, don't listen to them, they don't know Jesus, they're not following Jesus. And it becomes toxic. It's also not healthy to not talk about hard stuff. I think this is an area where I'm tempted a lot of times to just say, let's just not talk about that, right? Let's just sweep that under the rug and let's just keep going forward. That's called toxic positivity. And you know what? That isn't any more like Jesus than toxic negativity. That's not who we are. That's not who we want to be as a church. And while the task force noted that we need to get better at this, I am thankful, actually. I'm proud to be part of a church that values this, that says, you know what? We're going to be different. We're going to be people who work hard to listen to one another, to value other people's perspectives, to learn from each other. I know that my kids have been blessed by being a part of a church like this. Because here's the deal. Jesus actually addresses social and political issues. And so do other authors in the Bible. But what these authors teach, what Jesus teaches, often doesn't fit neatly into a box of either conservative or liberal, right? Republican or Democrat, it's all over the board. It don't, doesn't, there's no neat little binary. And so when we try to fit people into a box, or we fit these ideas into a box, we actually end up disregarding much of what's actually in the Bible. Our aim as a church is that when we read the Bible, we allow it to inform our ideas and ideals for engaging our social, cultural, and political world, and then align ourselves with what God's Word says. And to do this well again, we have to be able to listen to one another and to perspectives that are different than our own. This is actually what I think the Apostles' Creed was getting at when it says, we believe in one holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. First, it's stating there's one church. It's Jesus' church. Lots of different denominations, lots of different ways, but there's one church. And it belongs to Jesus, our leader. And Paul says it so clearly in his letter to the Romans when he says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In other words, every one of us is part of the same body, we're on the same side, there's one church. The word Catholic hits, uh, hints at this very same thing. It's not actually saying Catholicism is the one true religion. The Greek word for Catholic is actually Catholicus, which means universal or whole. In other words, all the followers of Jesus everywhere throughout time are part of the same one faith, the same one church. Now, more importantly, Paul says this church is holy. And before we start pushing a certain holiness agenda, let's just be reminded that the church isn't holy because of what we believe or because of what we do. Paul reminds us the church is holy because of what Christ has done. Christ died to make the church holy. The church is holy because of what Jesus did. He loved the church so much That he died for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be made clean, so that we could be forgiven. The world looks at us and sees all of our faults and failings. And God looks at us and he sees Jesus in every one of us who rely on his grace and his forgiveness. And who trust his leadership in our lives. He sees us as holy because his death and resurrection makes us holy. Now, the church is also holy because it's been set apart from the world and it's been set aside for a purpose. Paul actually says that Jesus used the telling of the good news to make us holy. We know that part of that good news is Jesus died for us, that we've been forgiven, but there's more to the good news. It also includes that Jesus invited us into his kingdom to live according to his will and by his power in our lives right here and now. And our purpose is to remain in that kingdom, right? It's to stay centered on this and to be able to share this good news and this invitation with others. And we do this best when we live out the kingdom values that Jesus teaches and that Jesus modeled for us. His values of justice and mercy and grace and truth. And Jesus said... When we do this, we're the light of the world. This is who we are, the light of the world. The church cannot live this out when we allow politics and pop culture and social agendas or popular opinion to inform our faith. That just leads to creeds of moral superiority and intolerance where we force people to choose sides and go to war over who's right and who's wrong. This is why the creed says, I believe in the communion of saints. The idea of the communion of saints is more than just being associated with people who maybe uh, uh, think alike. It's so much deeper. Alice alluded to this in, in her teaching, but communion of saints refers to intimate bonds of connection that only the Holy Spirit can form between people who trust and follow Jesus. Paul would call people saints. Whenever he wrote his letters, he'd say to the saints of this church, the saints of that church. And he wasn't doing it, calling them like some religious superheroes. He was writing to common everyday people like you and me, who simply put their trust in Jesus. And Paul would use the word to affirm the presence of the Holy Spirit in every one of them who trusted Jesus. The Holy Spirit is in you and with you. It confirmed both the power available to believers as well as the supernatural bond that ties every believer to each other throughout history. Now think about that for a second. Think about having a connection with everyone who has ever or will ever put their trust in Jesus. Think about the different experiences and perspectives and personalities and values and ideas that all of those people bring into the kingdom. We all share a bond, a oneness in Jesus, connected by the spirit who supersedes Every possible boundary that could separate us. The author of Hebrews paints a beautiful picture of this when he says that we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. It's like we get this picture of this giant stadium full of people, right, that covers our entire field of vision. And they're, it's wildly diverse, and they're looking down at us, living our lives of faith, and instead of saying, oh, I really like that group over there, let's cheer for them against that group over there. No, they see all of us, and they're cheering us on as one and saying, keep going, urging us forward. They are saying, we are for you. Keep going. Complete solidarity. See, the good news is that all these saints are for us, and it's a picture And a reminder that God is for us. And following Jesus means that we are going to choose to be for other people and not against them. It means we're going to set aside our disagreements. We're going to set aside our our agendas, our rights, and our privileges to let others know that the good news of God is for them too. It's about laying down our lives so others experience more of his life. That's what Jesus did. We're reminded by Paul that Jesus was uh, in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God or, or the same power as God as something to be used just for himself or just for a select few people who agreed with him. Instead, he emptied himself and became a servant to all, even his enemies. Jesus laid down his life, set aside his own rights and privileges and power, used all of God's resources to love and serve others. And when we do this, we're holy. We are the light of the world. This is who we are when we live out our mission, when we help next generations encounter and follow Jesus and bless a broken world. That's who we are. When we partner with others locally and internationally, when we sponsor children, when we build homes, when we empower young women, encourage young boys, girls, and families, when we're with them together in grief, we are the light of the world. When we invest in others, which I encourage all of you to sign up for that invest in others that's coming up for 40 days. It's going to encourage you on how to do that right where we are in our workplaces as teachers, counselors, business leaders, student ma- students, managers, coaches, doctors, nurses, right in our homes as parents, as children. When we do this, we are the light of the world. Sometimes we might say or do things that make people think we're bleeding heart liberals. And sometimes we might do things that make people think you're a little too conservative. We don't do that to promote an agenda or a social agenda. We do that because we want to show people we are for them. And God is for them. This is what sets the church apart from any other organization. And I believe it's the only way to engage next generations with Jesus' good news. Jesus says, this is how I plan to build my church, how it will become the light of the world. So on your way in, you were handed a card. And uh, it says, let the light shine, right, in the darkness. Light shines in the darkness. A few weeks ago, we wrote some of these cards to some of our medical professionals who, for the last couple years, have been shining a pretty bright light in the midst of dark times. And it was amazing to watch as people received these and then they shared about receiving these in more light like spread. I mean it was, it was amazing. So this morning we want to give you a chance right now in your seat to take part in the same thing, to, to write a short note to somebody. Maybe you've seen them shine a light, maybe you know that they need a light right now. But we're going to just take two minutes in the service. If you don't have a pen, I think there's pens in the back. If you didn't get a card, there's cards in the back. But just think of somebody in your circle of relationships who you'd just like to encourage this morning. Write two sentences. That's about all there is for a room on one of these anyway. Write write two sentences right now in the middle of the service about how you see them shining a light, about a strength, about maybe how they've blessed you, or maybe just an encouragement to them. And then I'm gonna encourage you to take that home, put it in a mailbox, there, you've got the envelope, address it. Just stick a stamp on it and drop that in the mail today. Let's be the light of the world. Take a couple minutes right now, and then we're going to stand and say the creed together. Now some of you may still be thinking, some of you at home stop by and grab a card, maybe you didn't have a chance to really identify who you want to encourage this week, but I encourage you, take an additional card. Maybe you wrote one, maybe you thought of six people, there's more cards in the back. I'd encourage you to take this card and share the light of the world with someone this week, and then sign up for Invest in Others so that we can keep spreading the light to our families, to our neighbors to those we work with and let's be the light of the world. Would you stand with me and let's uh, conclude this part of the service by saying the creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and was buried.